This Podcast Movement 2022 audio session is brought to you by Supporting Cast, the best way to sell and deliver exclusive podcasts. And special thanks to PM22 Virtual Ticket Presenting Sponsor, Amazon Music. All right, we're going live. Hello, everybody. I'm Steve Goldstein. Uh, I run a firm called uh, Amplify Media. We're an advisory firm. We work with a lot of different clients on their strategy and tactics in podcasting. Uh, we also uh, co-produce uh, one of the top branded podcasts uh, out there. And, uh, and, and if all goes well, uh, in the fall, I start as a professor at NYU, which I'm very excited about. Um, this is the fifth time that we're doing this panel. Uh, it's with different people each time, but it's always with leaders in the podcasting space. And not once has the topic remained the same. And, and we'll see as we go through this, there are just a lot of hot topics and a lot of hot takes that we're going to go through today. Um, I want to introduce the panelists, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, do a little bio thing, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Um, and of course, you guys are not seated in the order that I have this on the card, so I, I've already messed that up. Um, uh, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, sitting right, right here, uh, is the founder and CEO of Lemonada Media, an independent women-led podcast network with a mission to make life suck less. That, that feels like a a good mission. Uh, she serves as the, an executive producer of Lemonada's really interesting lineup of award-winning podcasts. Um, and yet, her background wouldn't suggest that she would end up here. She, uh, she was an attorney, and then she worked with Pod Save America. Can you tell us briefly how you ended up doing Lemonada? Yes. Um, actually made Pod Save the People uh, with Doray McKesson on Crooked Media. Um, yeah, I, it's a, and, and that's the that's the origin story for how I ended up in podcasting. I was, um, um, I went to NYU and I studied theater and then I went to law school and I became a lawyer and I was 20 something and I was like, this is horrible and I need to get out of it as quickly as possible. So I went into nonprofit management for a while, um, which is how I met Doray McKesson, host of Pod Save the People, who's my best friend. And um, I tried to take some time off. Any workaholics out there try to take time off? I cleaned my entire house, threw all my children's toys away, got a text message from DeRay that was like, can you help me? I just got a podcast with Crooked. And I was like, yes, but I didn't listen to podcasts, know what Crooked was, or know what he needed help with. But I was like, yes, please save me from my sabbatical. Um, and ended up being the producer of that show. Uh, learned a lot about podcasting and making podcasts, marketing podcasts, and monetizing podcasts um, with a brand new network at the time. Um, and then my little brother died of a heroin overdose in 2017. Um, and I did the thing you do. Um, also for workaholics, which is I was like, work will save me, and I will grieve in one part of my brain, and I will work on the other. Um, and I found Stephanie Whittles-Wax, who is my co-founder at Lemonada. Brother died the same way on a podcast. Long story short, made her talk to me, made her make this network with me, and now we have 26 shows, and we're trying to make people's lives suck less in very big ways and very small ways as well. A, a great story with an ugly origin moment in there, for sure. 
Um, Martina Castro is the founder and CEO of Adande Media, a multilingual podcast production company based in LA. Over the past five years, she has uh, been an executive producer on a lot of big projects, Duolingo, TED, Spotify, Sony Pictures, um, and now she is running her own company. And I think my favorite title, your new title, is the uh, is, is Song Exploder, uh, Cancion Exploder. And funny that Exploder just is Exploder, no matter what the, the language is. Yeah, you know, it's understood. <laughs> There's enough uh, words in English that translate pretty easily. <laughs> and, and so you started out doing executive producing early in podcasting, or even radio, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I started really at the bottom. I was an intern at NPR right out of college, um, and somehow landed in the industry that I was meant to be in. And... Thank goodness. That meant that I've spent almost a decade making audio, uh, but I did it all. I did not start executive producing. I started as a, you know, a production assistant, moved up to reporting and then editing and then managing editing. And NPR was really like where I was born into a leader um, at KLW in San Francisco. And then um, and then, yeah, launched our first my first podcast co-founded with uh, my co-founders of Radio Ambulante. Um, in 2011, so it was the first Spanish language podcast, and I think that that's why I ended up in that sector because there was nothing like it on the map at the time. Um, and five years later, when it got acquired by NPR, and then I'm in South America and seeing that there's nothing to compete with us really. Like there were some podcasts, but not as many as I thought five years in. So that's why I launched it on the media. I. I, w I don't, wouldn't have done it if I hadn't found this startup incubator in Chile um, that accepted me and gave me my first uh, bit of equity-free funding. Um, but the stars aligned in 2017 to launch a production company to make that kind more of those shows, shows in Spanish, shows that targeted non-English speaking, but also um, non-mainstream listeners. Um, so there's a lot of like that NPR mission still in me, like to go find the audience that deserves our stories that we're not talking to yet. Well, your timing is great, and uh, we're going to talk about that today, too. Uh, Larry Rosen is uh, my longtime friend. He is also the president of Edison Research. Uh, Edison, as you know, produces a lot of podcast-related content. Uh, they were in the radio space for a long time, um, still. Uh, they also produce a really, really good pan-audio syndicated content, uh, syndicated research product called Share of Ear. It's really valuable to see not just where podcasting is, but where all audio is. And we'll talk about that today. But I also, uh, Larry is also involved with the exit polls. Uh, they have the contract with most of the major uh, networks and papers. Are papers still around? Uh, that uh, look for exit poll data. Um, I'm wondering actually if we can spin over to the exit polls just for a sec and uh, get a hot take on where things are at the moment. Uh, well, hello everybody. This is Han. Yes? Um, yeah, I mean, like everyone, no one really knows what's going to happen in November. Uh, the, I, mostly I would just reference the indications we have from the data from the various primaries. And of course, primaries are limited in the predictive value of, of you know, especially in most states where it's just Republicans voting in the Republican primary and Democrats in the Democratic Party uh, primary. But the, the main things to think about going forward, you know, 
midterms especially tend to be all about turnout. And while historically the turnout is greater from the, uh, for the people from the party that it, it does not have the presidency, that may or may not happen this year. And you know, Kansas and that referendum there was a really interesting indicator where you know, we, we were on election night just endlessly increasing our turnout estimate for how many people were gonna vote in Kansas. And it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people more than we had predicted. And so the turnout will be uh, the key thing. And, and I, the other thing I'll say is just the interest in elections is, I mean, we've, we've never even covered midterm primaries before, and now we're covering all the midterm primaries. So the level of interest is just insane. Yeah, I mean, that really says it all, that uh, it's expanded from the four-year cycle to the two-year cycle to even everything in between. Yeah. Uh, so uh, last and definitely not least is the guy whose picture is not up on the back there. Um, our friend Dan Meisner uh, was scheduled to be on this panel. He's probably streaming this from his hotel room where he has COVID. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm guessing he won't be the only one, uh, but just a reminder, there's still COVID out there. Uh, but uh, his partner is Jonas Wost, who has uh, agreed to join us. And uh, Jonas was also at the same place Dan was, Pacific Content, for the past three years. And uh, they have launched a company uh, called uh, We Are Bumper, and we're going to dig in on marketing because I think the timing and the topic is uh, really important. Um, so so uh, what is Bumper, just briefly? Um, so we launched Bumper uh, two weeks ago. So I'm still working that pitch, so forgive me if it doesn't work. <laughs> we launched two weeks ago. This was our big uh, celebration and meeting people, and then we land, and then Dan's got COVID, like, right away. So hi, Dan. Uh, one day we'll laugh about this. Uh, not today. today. Not today, no. Um, um, we're calling, what, what Bumper is a, what we're calling a podcast growth agency. And basically, the idea is that we help um, um, organizations, enterprise-level podcasters, uh, grow their podcast success. We think that mainly means growing the audience, although with a lot of our past clients when we were Pacific Content, it wasn't always about the audience size. It was more about the, uh, the impact on the business that that audience might have. So it's not all about like how many people, but who you're reaching, what do these people do? So helping organizations grow that podcaster's success, helping organizations grow their audience. Well, let, let's start right there because I think that's a common pain point for uh, most podcasters today. I mean, when I started seven years ago, uh, the conversation was about building great content, uh, and then you threw a link into Twitter and you were on your way. Uh, and we're clearly not there anymore, are we? Uh, so, so um, Jess, I'm wondering, uh, you have a lot of titles. Um, uh, it, it, they're not super chart topper type, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how you get the word out about podcasts today and how that differs from the way it was six months ago, a year ago, two years ago. Yeah. Um, so we have one of the top news shows on the planet, In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt. So right now it's uh, the daily and up first and then in the bubble. Um, so we're, we're at like top 50 um, across most of our shows right now. Um, and the 20th top um, subscriber channel on Apple on the, the new charts. And it's been three years, so it's taken, it takes time. Um, and I'm, I'm our CEO, so I'm the one who has to, you know, make sure that we know what we're running towards as a team. Like there are 60 of us now. We do everything in-house at Lemonada. We 
make the shows. Um, we're just starting to acquire already made content, which is exciting, but we make the shows, we monetize them, we market them, we distribute them, we do it all. Um, uh, all of it by full-time staff members at Lemonada and um, I'm sorry to say that it is a million little things done well every single day over and over again, repeatedly and with fidelity and with taking data and doing it better the next time. Um, so that is the secret sauce. The secret sauce is awesome people and Excel spreadsheets <laughs> and a lot of conversations and then being nice to each other because it doesn't always work even when you check every single box. Um, so when it doesn't work, then going back to the drawing board and being like, what did we, what did we miss here? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think um, when it comes to marketing a show, um, there's a list of about 40 things you've got to do every single time and, and, and always. Um, so there's launch and then there's keeping the numbers and then there's growth um, and what kind of growth you're looking for kind of you know, impacts all of it. Um, and um, I just came off another stage where I said, um, and I love to say the best things in life are free, um, but you got to do those things well too. So word of mouth, nothing will ever replace people telling each other, listen to my podcast. Um, nothing will ever replace um, being featured in places where people who listen to podcasts can find you. So right now that's platforms. I don't know if it'll always be platforms, but at the moment it's these apps that we love, our Apple apps, our Spotify apps, our Stitcher apps, our all of them, CastBox, you name it, being, being there front and center because we... We just need to be told what to listen to sometimes. Um, and that involves cultivating relationships with editorial teams, being on the right cycle, and making sure your podcast about, um, uh, your, we, 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 we always leverage months, for example. We do a lot of mental health stuff, so Mental Health Awareness Month. We're getting it in the queue like weeks and weeks before for that editorial team, which is usually like two people. Um, so a million little things done well, repeatably. That is how you market shows. Uh, Jonas, you come out of the uh, branded space, really hard to find an audience, and uh, can, you, can you talk about that? Because I think that's a lot of what you and Dan are bringing to the table now is uh, uh, learning tactics and strategies from podcasts that don't naturally get an audience. The, uh, Jess, I couldn't have said it any better, this sort of the list of best practices that you need to go down. Uh, we've, we've launched two weeks ago, and we're lucky that a lot of people reaching out, having conversations, and everyone's basically asking the question, so what's the secret sauce? What's the thing? And it's exactly it. It's just a long list of things. Brands are in a, a, a bit of a unique space there um, in terms of finding audiences because it doesn't seem like natural that you know a big brand has a podcast and how they're going to find an audience. But the truth is that a lot of brands especially the bigger ones that have what, what we call superpowers, brand superpowers, because in fact, they already have a big audience. And especially some brands are quite beloved, you know, not all brands, but some brands have a, a real audience that follows them. And, and for those brands to be able to, to activate those, which is surprisingly difficult in a, in a big organization. Um, I used the example of Ford. We did this podcast, a fun podcast about the, um, <clears throat> the, the new, not so new anymore, but that the Bronco truck, you know, there's like a new Bronco out right now. And we, um, uh, we did a podcast about it and they were able to, they were, I, I'm mixing up the number here, but 200,000 people that had put down the 100 bucks to like be on the wait list. You know, you can do this thing, you put money down. Well, there's 200,000 people that put money down together. Well, they were very interested in a documentary about the history of the Bronco. So activating those kind of things. And, and sorry, the irony is it was hard to get on that email list 
you would think that, well, but there are so many different departments, right, within these organizations. Someone controls the email and someone the podcast, and to work through that. So my point is that there's these superpowers that brands have, but activating them can be quite difficult. That's kind of what we come in to, mm -hmm. to help with that. And, and just to, to top up one thing, when, when, you, when brands, or I think anyone, when you develop your podcast and you come up with that idea, we really encourage everyone to come up with your, your what we call an audience development plan or an audience growth plan. Make sure it's in parallel to the creation of the, the creative, as you think about like what, what stories do you want to tell or what do you want to sound like and who's going to host it. Make sure you have that conversation about like how we're going to grow this thing right away, not an afterthought, but make sure it's a, um, a parallel process. Then you come up with your strategy, and your strategy is really what you describe, a long list of things you need to do. We call it a strategy, it sounds more fancy, but really it's just a plan, right? Make sure you come up with that right away. Uh, Martini, you and I were just talking right before about uh, whether the list is any different in the sector that you're in. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's different. It sounds like it's the same hard. Absolutely. I, I mean, it is. It's so fascinating to see how things are very similar, but also, obviously, we have some added disadvantages or challenges, you could say, because of the language barrier and the different languages that we're trying to target people in. Um, and the lack of research. Uh, frankly, that's why the Latino Listener Report was so groundbreaking. Imagine before that came around, we had nothing. If, if you're not on the map you, you, for marketers or for, for advertisers, um, how are you going to monetize? So it, it's, a, it, it's so many legs of the, of the stool that need to be firmed uh, in order to really see a boom in our sector of the industry. Um, but what's interesting about Eredonde, we took a very different route than Limonada, and it's, I, I just love hearing you speak because right now we're finally thinking about originals, but we started with brands. So it's a little bit of a mishmash of both of um, Jonas and, and Jess's uh, perspectives. We learned a lot with our brands. So I, we started, we're small. So when we started with Duolingo, they had their, they had their superpower. They had their built-in audience, um, but it's not their core product. So g fighting for the resources for that and proving its, you know, its success was that journey with brands. But we learned so much from seeing how um, audiences reacted to this thing that they didn't know existed. So one of the things that I end up always saying is that you've got to build it first. We, we are doing a lot of firsts. Um, we're now just launching originals, so we can't be upset <laughs> because we didn't hit it out the park with season one. You don't get into that game without thinking of season two and season three. So we're just starting to push the ball forward of showing audiences what's possible, um, especially in Spanish language. For Latinos in general, I think that there, are, we're gonna talk about the Latino Listener Report soon, but what the latest numbers show is that this audience is maturing. They are interested in way more categories than ever before. Every, uh, literally across the board, all categories are up. What does that mean? They're listening to more podcasts and more different types of podcasts. But it's very, very hard to find these podcasts in Spanish, for example. We have a huge discoverability issue. So, but you know, same buzzwords as in English, discoverability, um, go to the audience where they are. People are still discovering the medium. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question. It's just that those are all the things we think about <laughs> when you're trying to uh, grow an audience. Well, uh, I, let's take a slightly different tack. Larry, you and I have talked many times about the number five, 
uh, that there are, people are listening on average to five podcasts, eight episodes, but five podcasts. Part of the problem has to be getting onto the shelf at this point. Yeah, and um, you know, there's that's something. You know, that probably most of the people here are you know power listeners who listen all the time. Love it. that's why you're here. You love it, and and you enjoy it so much. But you know, you do have to consider the limitation. Uh, you know. The overwhelming majority of people, podcast listening is an intensive experience. It's not something you put on in the background and just have playing. You, you know, you're listening because you want to listen and you want to listen closely and with intention. And a lot of people just only have so much time to dedicate to that in their day. Um, and so, you know, even as we have tracked the number of people listening to podcasts growing over the years, those numbers really haven't changed in terms of once you sort of join the club, how many do you listen to? And so increasingly, I think it is, I mean, there's two tracks, right? We, there's still lots and lots of people who are not listening to podcasts or not listening regularly who remain to be attracted to this medium. But at the same time, we're going to start having to fight for the shelf space, if you will, with that limited amount of time that people have. And I've seen this even in my own behavior. You know, there's some shows that just don't give me quite the same level of joy they once did or whatever. And I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll unsubscribe to that one. So that, you know, that's part of the challenge that we all have is getting them and then, of course, keeping them. Yeah, it, it, it's, a lot, it's a lot like TV. I mean, the, the shows run a cycle uh, and, and they may not be uh, supposed to live forever. I mean, I Love Lucy was six seasons, hard, hard to believe. Um, uh, let's talk about the Latino uh, study. Uh, it was uh, done by Edison. You were a sponsor with it, um, and it came up during uh, Gabe's talk this morning. What What are some of the hot takes out of that, and and what do you think it means? Let's start with Larry, and then we'll go to Martina. Well, I I think Gabe really crystallized it this morning, which is opportunity. Um, that uh, you know, there we talk about oh, there's four million titles on the apps, you know, available and and. Uh, there truly is something for everyone, but the mere fact that there is something for everyone doesn't mean that anywhere close to everyone has found that something, and, and that is the loop that has to be closed. And I, what I thought was, you know, there were many, many insights that I thought were really interesting, but, you know, similar, you know, we talked about multiple tracks, you know, the, that, you know, you can't, this is not a monolithic group, and there's not just one strategy that's going uh, to work for, for any group. And so filling in all those gaps, as well as all the other stuff you guys were talking about with regard to making people aware that this is out there and, and generating trial, and then some percentage of that trial will lead to sticking and subscription, et cetera, so, or following, I should say. So um, those, those are the main things, but uh, obviously I'm very interested in Martina's uh, perspective. Oh, gosh, I love this report so much. Um, the, the thing about the monolithic uh, group, like talking about Latinos in general is, is already the beginning of the problem, and that's what I love about the report, is that you can really hone in on the group that you really want to talk to. You will see different listening trends based on whether you're first generation, US born, second, third, or an, a recent immigrant to the US. So if you are trying to target Latinos, start getting deeper into what Latino you want to talk to. Because um, they listen differently. Um, and their language, I mean, some things, you know, it depends on the language, um, also topics. Um, I was really uh, 
I, everything that I said, or what I said earlier about all the, all the genres going up, seeing music at number one, having just released a music podcast, very excited about that. Um, but, you know, true crime, I remember when we did the first study, the first year, this was three years ago, true crime was so low and everyone was like honing in on that number. They're like, why? Oh, I guess they just don't like it. Now it is shot up to being one of the top uh, categories. There's discovery coming happening right now in this sector. And um, it grew a lot during the pandemic. Um, we have a huge opportunity before us. I think that is the key word. This is a young audience, over half, uh, or almost half, are, are U.S. firstborn. Um, and I think that we have an opportunity to capture their interest um, across languages. But there is a, the, the Spanish language sector, I think, is where I'm obviously focused, that it is very hard. The anecdotal research you did, I thought, was excellent. Um, just really hard. If you're based in the US, you are not marketed podcasts in Spanish. I have a lot of trouble in uh, surfing Apple or Spotify and get, you know, as we know, platform is one way to discover podcasts. They're just not marketed to me. Um, so how do you find those? Um, there's so much more, but definitely read it. I cannot recommend it enough. One of the topics that was up yesterday during the, um, uh, the business sessions uh, with uh, the Barletta Webster thing was YouTube. Um, so, I mean, here we are, it was an Apple world and it's a Spotify Apple world, and now it's a YouTube Apple world and uh, who knows what's next, but let's, pause and talk about video. Jonas, let's let's start with you on that. Is this a giant pain in the ass? Is this a real thing? Should a podcast have a video component? I mean, I, you know, I think about this in terms of my background, which is radio. We put the camera in the studio, and what we learned was they're really bad on camera. Uh, and, and so I'm wondering if we're sort of there or if this is going to roll out differently. I think your question was, is it a pain in the ass? Should they do it? So yes, yeah, all, all the above. The answer is just yes. Um, Thank you very much. So let's just think about YouTube. So we would recommend to our clients, we would recommend the following. We want to make sure that your, your podcast is where, where the audience is, right? The audience, the listeners, the audience is. And if there's a bunch of people on YouTube, then yeah, then you want to make sure that your, your podcast is there as well. Now, the, the, the sort of the devil is in the details. For our brand clients, for example, if it's a documentary-style show, it's a little kind of hard to have that video component, so you maybe end up with a still image with, with, with the whole audio there. That could work. That could be kind of good. good. If it's an interview-style show, if it looks like a recorded Zoom call, it just might not be the thing that the brand wants to put out there because it just doesn't represent maybe the quality that that client stands for. They might just choose not to do it because it doesn't look that very great, right? Because I'm not going to watch a Zoom call. like This is not going to happen. Um, but the idea is that, no, if, if there's... If there's listeners out there, then you want to be out there too, and, and, and you should be there. Now, there's one thing I think that we're getting confused these days, uh, our, at least our clients do a lot. It's, it's video as a distribution platform versus video as a promotion platform to promote the podcast. You know, TikTok will be one example, or even on YouTube. Or should I put like short uh, clips or something on YouTube, and then people can that way discover the podcast? And again, our, we would say, sure, yeah, you, you, should, you, should, you can do that. That, that can be quite... That could, that could work. But the truth is from the number that we've seen and maybe seen different numbers, it's not very effective to grow a podcast audience. If your KPI is, if your number that you're thinking about is like, I want to get a bunch of listens on the podcast, 
we haven't seen that conversion where people like discovered on TikTok and then come over and listen to the, we haven't seen it that much. A hundred percent true. A hundred percent correct. And, but and, people, and if you ahead. have a very, add on to this, if you have a very prolific person and they're doing a short TikTok or Instagram or whatever, uh, or YouTube clip, it's just as well to listen to the four minutes they get there at the 30 seconds you get there and you're not, people are like, oh, I got, I got, I got the gist. I got the funny part. I don't need to go listen to the podcast now. So you really have to thread that needle carefully. And maybe that's okay, right? But it could it, be. it's just like, okay, that's just, just you, suddenly you have a separate thing. You have a podcast and you have a TikTok strategy and they're just separate things. That's also good. That's not a bad thing, but it's just, we ask our clients to like manage expectations that that crossover, that people come from video and come to the podcast, that's likely not going to happen. So just measure your expectation and measure it separately. Have your expectation for audio, for the podcast, and then have separate expectations for TikTok. And that can work really well. It's just like our clients, of course, because they have a newsletter and they have a blog and they, have a, they do multiple things, right? That's completely fine. In fact, that's recommended. That's what they should be doing. Um, yeah, but getting people from one platform to another platform, very, very hard. Je Jess, you have a YouTube channel. Um, I mean, <laughs> it exists. The what? It exists. It exists. But, it, but it's not a big part of what you're doing. And it's, I guess, I mean, your storytelling is different. It's dense in a good way. <laughs> um, and that makes it harder, I'm just guessing. Yeah, I mean, when you started off with the question of is it a pain in the ass, I mean, I think our KPI is around audience and our other KPI is around revenue. And so for us, that means let's be laser focused on growing the biggest audience on our RSS feeds at the moment. Um, so YouTube being able to eventually integrate onto our RSS feed, we use Omni, but you could use whatever. Um, that is a game changer for us saying, okay, let's hire some producers who are gonna take content here and distribute it here as well. Um, and when we can do dynamic ad insertion in both places, that's a game changer as well. So that justifies a team around it. But right now it is two productions. It is two productions, period. So like we have a production team that makes a podcast and they are, they are X number of people. And in order to then do the same thing on YouTube, um, and I'll give you one exception, uh, it is, it's like a 2X. Like you need a whole other team for that. You need, and then your hosts, like, you know, if it's a chat show or a solo show, um, your host's like, oh, am I doing hair and makeup? Like, what, what is this? And we, you know, we have some hosts who like care about that. They care about what they look like and then they don't want to distribute the Zoom recording that their friend said they would come on but didn't think was going to be on YouTube. Um, so it is, it is complicated to do well. Um, what I think a lot of people, and we do a lot of narrative podcasts, which do not lend themselves to video format because otherwise that's a documentary. Like that's a, you know, you're in field, that's a documentary. But what we have done mildly successfully is just put a, the same beautiful sound recording on YouTube for discovery purposes mostly. Um, we do a lot of trailer work on YouTube, then that converts really well. Lizzie on our marketing team is nodding vigorously and making sure I'm being honest, but she's in the audience and actually manages this work. I'm just reporting out. Um, so, so we use YouTube strategically for discovery right now. Um, we have not hit the nail on the head, um, partially because we don't feel like we're ready to on um, using it as a main distribution tool for the long form of our podcasts. I just want to chime in to say that we, we've dabbled as well. Um, and for us, what's interesting, especially with the findings of the recent report, is that there's so many Latinos who are turning to, who are interested in improving their language learning. And so what we do on YouTube is we put subtitles. And that's 
helpful <laughs> to people who are maybe not as advanced Spanish learners so as to be able to comprehend it without the subtitles. But we haven't marketed that. We just kind of, it's a passive, like we just put it up there and a lot of people find us there and they love the interactive, they love the comment section. I mean, a lot of people are like, what is this? I want more of this. And they talk to each other. And like the fact that there's an interactivity element on YouTube is really interesting to me, but we have not marketed it yet. Um, and I wonder if for us or anyone who's making something that's targeting um, English learners, because um, Latinos are also really interested in learning English, um, using the subtitle element to, to, to capture that audience. And Larry, you, you, you've been a proponent, I don't know if that's right, the right word on YouTube, I guess more identifying that this is... Yeah, we're, we're measuring thing. it, and it's a major big deal. And, you know, uh, they're uh, part of the Google universe, and Google is, uh, you know, so ultra-powerful. I mean, what is 90-something percent of all searches are done on Google, and search leads to lots of things. And so... Um, Understanding at minimum uh, the the impact is you know that's where it starts. But um, I, I'm pro YouTube in the sense I mean I'm not in the business of having to figure out how to monetize and, and make it work. But I just think as a as a pathway to distribute your content and if that's the goal is to have as many people connect with it as possible. There's just a lot of people that that's where their brain goes first. It goes to YouTube first before they would even think to go to a podcast. So it can either. If, if your goal is to hopefully some of it can get transferred over to RSS, if, or you, they'll just interact with you there. Can you um, tell us in the next year, or maybe already now, like what I think we're most interested in, are, are people just putting it on the background on their desktop and not looking? Because if they're not looking, then forget about the video part of it. We'll just put the audio up. Like tell us what, tell us what's, what they're using it. Well, I don't know it. where it will be a year from now. I always say I'm not, I don't, I don't predict the future, but I can tell you what the present is. And most people do tell us that their eyes are on, uh, but we have not yet had the chance to really break that down into, I mean, in some of these there's literally just a static screen. And so it's hard to imagine their eyes are on. So I think they're answering that eyes on, but there's something to look at. And I think we have to get deeper into the research to answer that question, which is, if it's simply just a static screen and it's just, you know, the podcast playing, what are they, how are they doing it, what are they doing, et cetera. This is actually in the Latino Listener Report. I'm looking at the slide right now. Um, and it, and more people report that they are, they're watch, actively watching the video. We just don't know what the video is. Right. Um, but that also... Um, not that much, not that far down. Sixty-six uh, percent say that they um, will minimize it in the background. So I, I think we need. I would love to know about the subtitles part, for example. Like there's this way. Our, this is our session for next year. Our session for next year. Yes. Um, we're we're going to take some questions in a in a few minutes. Before we uh, get to that, though, I want to talk about the ad market. Um, uh, Larry, you had mentioned to me that you have been speaking to agencies. I'm curious, what are the pain points? What do they What do they want to know, and how are they feeling about the space? Well, you, you know, that, that's a big market as well. You can't paint that with with one stroke. I mean, there's you know the uh, more direct or, or direct response oriented agencies who've long been in the space and. Uh, understand the space and it's worked incredibly well for them. I've been spending a lot of time talking to sort of big corporate advertising and um, it's amazing to talk to some of them and they're still in the, yeah, you know, we're thinking of dipping our toe into podcasting at some point. But 
you know, the thing that comes up in every single one of these discussions is brand safety and this uh, deep fear that their brand is going to end up next to content that they don't want it near. And so I think that's uh, a big challenge for the whole space going forward is um, creating trust, assuming you have a show worthy of trust, but creating trust that um, advertisers can can know confidently that they can put their brand, which they take you know such care with, into any given content and know that it will be safe um, safe there. And so, um, you know, brand safety I think has has gone from sort of a, a thing people talk about to the first thing people talk about in that space. Jess, you, you have your own team, you're selling the podcasts, and you're selling them differently because of the kind of content. Um, what are you seeing? How are you feeling about that? Yeah, we, um, we launched Lemonada. The only thing we ex externalized was ad sales from the start. So we had a phenomenal partners at, at Westwood One, Kelly Hurley, she's not serious, really freaking amazing human being, um, and helped us launch Lemonada. And then we moved over to mid-roll. And um, they were great too, but nobody was able to sell like we were able to sell our own content. Um, and so we took the entire operation in-house about 18 months ago. Um, and I think, listen, I, I also buy podcast ads, so I'm on both sides. Like I, I'm buying and I'm selling. And we have just a different way of doing things. We, um, we don't have a commission-based team. Um, it is completely done with our production team, with our marketing team. Like we, we don't operate in silos. Um, and we think about ROI all the time for our, our advertisers. And we think about the long term. Um, when I buy ads on another network, I want to see conversions. So we're tracking with pixels. We're offering that to, to our buyers. Um, we're thinking about 360 approaches. Like, what are you, what are you really trying to do? Everything's host read at Lemonada. Um, we're launching our own ad tech soon, um, which you guys will hear about um, somehow. Uh, and that'll allow um, for, for more people to buy into the network at, at, a, at a bigger scale. Um, but all of it is very thoughtful um, so that we can keep folks with us for the long haul. Um, I think Brian tweeted like a year ago, we have a childcare podcast called No One Is Coming To Save Us, with Kristen Bell and Gloria Rivera. Um, they're still not coming. The, the show's 18 months, we're still waiting, no one's coming. Um, it's in its second season, it's now a weekly show. Um, and I think Brian tweeted something, he's like, my wife is listening to No One Is Coming To Save Us from Lemonada Media and in the background, and all I can think about is these ads sound like part of the show, they like make sense. It's like Sitter City and, and other stuff that is related to parenting, parenting young children. Uh, so our, we think about our ads as content. Um, we think about our ads as you know a, a big part of the ecosystem of the listener's experience and you know, make life suck less. Like I'm, I'm listening to a show, my life sucks. I would like it to suck a little less. Can someone please drop food at my door? Can someone please give me a code for something I wanted to buy anyway? So we're just really, that, that's how we think about it. Um, when things retract, you know, we're, we're like, you know, if, this, if someone needs to, um, an agency needs to drop, we're like, come back to us whenever you're ready. Um, so really just cultivating relationships as human beings and not um, on a transactional quarterly cycle. The lovely Tia has a microphone, and uh, if you have questions, she can work the crowd here. And while we're waiting on that, a quick one. Subscription podcasts, is this happening? Uh, anybody's thinking on this as I'm thinking about streaming and everybody jumping in, jumping out? I mean, how is it really going on the podcast side? Uh, I, I think 
there's definitely an opportunity there. And I'm, I'm sure there are stories of people who are making money now. But it, 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 believing that no one will pay, I think, is a mistake. I think that um, it, if the product is right, if the value is there, people will pay. And, uh, you know, there's an endless history of things that were free um, that, you know, no one would ever pay for, uh, like bottled water and uh, cable television and uh, Netflix, et cetera. And so um, if people haven't turned the key yet, that means they haven't either put the opportunity in front of people such that they want to do it or the value proposition has not yet been made. But I, I think believing that no one will ever pay is a mistake. We have a question right here. If you could just identify yourself and just ask the question quickly because we're running low on time. Great. Thank you all so much. My name is Megan Tan. I am a producer and host in Los Angeles. And my question is, I think that there's a big debate for content creators and also companies of serialized shows versus weeklies versus dailies. And so I'm curious when you guys are talking about originals, the benefits and approaches of these two types of products, and also maybe with brands, what do you see the benefits of in terms of return on event investments for serialized and versus weeklies? I mean, weekly, daily shows are really hard to make and very expensive to make. Um, so you, you need to have a big audience to support that. And if you can do that, then cha-ching if you're selling ads because it's just selling ads, selling ads, selling ads, selling ads, right? Same for weeklies. Um, they're less expensive to make because they're only coming out once a week, maybe twice, uh, but still complicated. Um, but again, if you can grow an audience, that is a, a real revenue driver for a lot of companies. Um, as with anything, it's like diversified portfolio. Like you want to have some of everything. Um, storytelling, if there's a start and an end to a story, a limited run, uh, four episodes, six episodes, ten episodes, that makes a ton of sense. If it's reported, it's that's really complicated as well. Um, so I think it really depends. But if you if you are managing a network like I am, or you know, ma or helping other people manage networks, if you're managing a network, you want to have a little bit of everything. Well, we have time for one more question here before we get cut off. Oh, hi, um, this is Inigo. Um, I am creating a podcast in Spanish, pushing the ball. <laughs> and uh, my question is uh, for you, Jess. You mentioned you're constantly tracking ROI. And how do you compare, or how do you compare ROI um, of the shows that you create against, for example, digital ads or influencer marketing? Like, um, and also, how can you factor in the repu reputational gain um, that a show can have towards a brand equity, for example? Um, very brief answer. Okay, 14-second answer now. Um, yeah, um, you have to have realistic expectations, and you can find some of these conversion metrics online, but it's like in the 1% or less range. So know that there's a funnel, and if you're going to reach 100 people, about one of those people is going to do the thing that you want them to do in any given ecosystem at most. Um, so you're going to spend a lot of money if you want, if you're, if that's how you're, if that's how you're advertising. But as you know, it takes seven people knocking you over the head with something before you do it, whoever you are. So sometimes you got to do all of those things in order to get, you know, the outcome that you want. 
We are out of time. You guys are terrific. As I said in the note, we, we, we had three hours of content to get to. Uh, but I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.